0: monetizing digital services since 2004 boosting the entertainment industry by making digital content accessible for everyone awg where innovation meets monetization linkedin presents
1: welcome to the human capital innovations podcast where your source for personal professional and organizational growth and development about reinventing leadership for the future of work. Hamza Khan, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast.
0: Dr. Westover. Sorry, John. Thank you so much for having me.
1: <laughs> it is a pleasure to be with you. I believe you're joining us from the New York area, aren't you? You got it, sir. From uh, from Hell's Kitchen. Wonderful. And I'm south of Salt Lake City in Utah. We are getting dumped on currently. Uh, oh, the, boy. It's the winter that never ends. <laughs> Uh, we have, it's a record year. I think some of the snow resorts have received like 800 inches of snow this year so far No way. And, it's, and it's still coming, uh, which is good because we've been in drought like much of the West. And so oh, all of the water is Im- really good and important uh, to replenish uh, the reservoirs and everything. But man, my goodness, we woke up this morning and it felt like Christmas. So um, oh, man. <laughs> hopefully it's getting a little warmer there in New York.
0: It's a, uh, you know, a strange, dark upside to global warming over here. We never really had a winter. <laughs> how, how are things in Salt Lake city in may?
1: Uh, I mean, it's usually beautiful, very lovely okay. by this point in time. It's usually, you know, nice in spring and blossoms
0: and uh, it's going to be a bit delayed this year. Uh, so we'll see. All right. I'm going to be heading there right after a short trip with my niece to Disneyland to Salt Lake to speak at a conference, the AICPA nice. and CIMA conference. So uh, I think I'll be appropriately clothed. <laughs>
1: Yes. And perhaps you'll still have some great skiing even in May. (laughs) We'll see. Love it. Looking forward to it. (laughs) Okay. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Today, we're going to be talking about reinventing leadership for the future of work. And I'm super thrilled to explore this topic with you. It's it's one that I'm passionate about as well. As we get started, I wanted to share Hamza's bio with everybody. Hamza Khan is a best-selling author and global keynote speaker whose TED Talk, Stop Managing, Start Leading, has been viewed nearly 2 million times. He is a top-ranked university educator and respected thought leader whose insights have been featured by notable media outlets such as Vice, Business Insider, Hamza is trusted by the world's preeminent organizations to enhance human potential and optimize performance. His clients include the likes of Microsoft, PepsiCo, LinkedIn, Deloitte, Salesforce, TikTok, and over 100 colleges and universities. As the co founder of Skills Camp, a leading soft skills trading company, he is on a mission to empower organizations to thrive in the future of work. From Fortune 500 boardrooms to international conferences, he regularly shares actual insights on the topics of leadership, resilience, and productivity. I think all of that is tremendous. Thank you again for joining me. Anything else you would like to share by way of your background or personal context before we dive on into the conversation?
0: Uh, Thank you, sir. That was a very, very generous introduction. and uh, I was smiling. I was feeling very proud of all the accomplishments that I've been able to uh, have over the last 15 years of my career. But having read your bio, having read up on you, I was like, oh man, I'm a baby over here. I'm a a spring chicken compared to Dr. Westover and, and the work that you've done. And so I, I'm just very glad to be here I'm honored to be in your presence to, to to join the pantheon of guests that you brought on this podcast and to learn you know what's that saying uh, when when one teaches to learn so thank you for gifting me an opportunity to share with your audience today and I'm looking forward to this conversation because I believe that you have the career that uh, I'm trying to emulate uh, you've extended and are continuing to extend the runway of what's possible for me as somebody who hopes to have as storied and as successful as a career as you do so thank you sir for everything that you do uh if you want to know more about me, it's uh, I'm I'm trying to become you.
1: <laughs> well, that is very kind. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, again, really a pleasure to be with you, and this it is a privilege to sit down every day and to have these wonderful conversations with thought leaders and executives and and otherwise organizational leaders from across the globe. It's it's fantastic. It's so enriching to me. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, why don't we dive on in, okay. and maybe you can share a little bit about. Uh, the reinvented piece. So you have this recent book, um, right. where you know the the introduction to this episode is really taken from from that book, reinventing leadership for the future of work. Tell us about the book. Why the book? Why now? What do you mean by reinventing leadership? Wow.
0: Yeah. Thank you for asking that. Um, unlike the first book that I wrote, The Burnout Gamble, which took me. Just under three years to write uh, every single day, piece by piece, I was able to crank out "Leadership Reinvented" in the span of I think three months. And I wrote about this in the epilogue of my book. I wrote that uh, this book practically wrote itself. I found myself in a unique situation in which I was primed to observe the world in a different way. Uh, my father experienced a health scare during the early days of the pandemic that was brought upon brought upon by uh, stress. Disorientation and all the volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity that we feel profoundly in 2023. But, uh, you know, I just became acutely aware of in the first couple of weeks of the pandemic. And it changed the way that I looked at the leadership apparatus uh, across government, nonprofit, and corporations that was entrusted to guide us through this pandemic. And uh, the the idea that kept on running through my brain was this, how you prepare today is how you'll perform tomorrow. And the way in which I saw people performing, specifically leaders performing during the early days of the pandemic, led me to believe that we need a reinvention of leadership, specifically that set of values that we sink to during times of crisis, especially during periods of change. There's this misconception that people step up during a time of change, step up during a crisis, but the opposite is true. They actually sink back to the level of their training values and preparation. so again, how you prepare today is how you perform tomorrow. And uh, frankly, I was just very discouraged by what I was seeing specifically in the corporate sector, especially in the government. Um, and we're seeing this now play out in in the prolonged failure to respond to what is clearly a paradigm shift in the future of work that has happened since the pandemic. You know, Gallup is consistently finding, I think now 10 years straight, that uh, most of the workforce is disengaged. I think 85% was the most recent state of the workplace report. I found that 85% of the global workforce is disengaged. Edelman is finding that uh, with their trust barometer, that trust in NGOs and government and business is declining precipitously. Life expectancy is dropping for the first time actually in the United States. Life expectancy is dropping wild. Inequality is growing. Workplace stress-related illness, injuries and fatalities are on the rise. I mean, I could go on you know, John, I'm preaching to the choir over here, but I've walked away from from this experience, having watched leaders stumble through their pandemic, that the world of work isn't really working for most people, including leaders. Yeah. So this book was very much written as a call to action to to distill my thoughts, to organize my thoughts around this, and to help us create a new system that we can sink back to during times of stress and change that will inevitably happen. One that is profoundly human centric, pro social, as opposed to the styles of leadership. And I, I use the word leadership loosely over here. We're talking about management specifically <laughs> that people sink to that are remnants of the first and second industrial revolution, namely the theory X style of management, dominance oriented leadership and so on and so forth.
1: Yeah. Well, and I really like how you highlighted how we tend to sink down to our base level of competency and skill in times of crisis. So sometimes Mm -hmm. we do point to glowing examples and there there were some, I mean, there were lots of bad examples during the pandemic, but there were some glowing examples too. And we really pointed to those and we say, look, these people rose to the occasion. I'm not so sure they rose to the occasion. It's just the occasion allowed for the spotlight to be on them for how good they are always. Right. Yeah. Um, But, but what really happened is in so many cases, leaders just weren't up to the challenge at all, not even remotely. And, and then you see all of the negative things that were happening during that time uh, and as you said, you know, it's, it's not just early days of the pandemic that people were floundering. I mean, it's, it's still today and yeah. we're still looking, you know, trying to figure out how to staff organizations, uh, when the, the, the whole attitude around work and, and flexibility and everything like that has shifted for so many people, the psychological contract has shifted. Uh, people just want different things. And yet many of the old school leaders, quote unquote leaders, like you said, more like managers, mm-hmm. um, they, they, they want things to just neatly go back to the way they were before. And that's just not the world we live in.
0: And John, on that note, I'd love to ask you, because this is the question that I get asked the most when I do workshops and training. I'm always asked what advice I would give to uh, organizations, specifically leaders that are insisting on their knowledge workers returning to a Monday to Friday, nine to five mandated workday work week, I should say. Um, and I find that I'm, I'm pulling my punches and not saying what I truly feel. <laughs> I, I don't know why I feel like I, this this conversation with you is is emboldening me as somebody that is that is thinking about this to a degree that I, I hope to have that level of sophistication and 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 vast foresight and insight and and even wisdom uh, about this. so' I'm, I'm curious to know John, not not to put you on the spot yeah. here, but uh, I know you're being asked the same question as well. how have you been guiding leaders?
1: It's insane. Like it's crazy. (laughs) If if you think I was not expecting that answer. (laughs) If if you think you're just gonna go back to the things the way things were and that it's gonna work, it's you're you're just you're crazy. You're up in the night, your head's in the sand. Mm. I'll I'll say with the caveat that of course every organization is unique, has its own unique context. So there are situations where it makes complete sense for workers to go back to work. Um even thought leader, you know, uh, knowledge worker types of jobs where they literally could be done anywhere. It does oh. make sense sometimes for people to be back together in the workplace. Agreed. Um, but generally speaking, does that require them to always be back together? Probably not. And that's why hybrid work has become, uh, such a, uh, popular approach to, to allow the flexibility to adapt to the unique circumstances of a given team within a given organization Uh, But yeah, if you're just going back to the way things always were before, for the vast majority of organizations, I just don't see how that makes any sense. And Mm -hmm. it's wishful thinking to think that you're just going to magically return. People's attitudes have shifted. Their priorities have shifted. Uh, What they want from the work that they do has shifted. Um, And as you said, other things have uh, unfortunately shifted in a negative way in terms Mm -hmm. of trust in organizations and institutions uh, and those sorts of things. That's just the reality. And so we have to learn how to navigate this new reality. It's one of the reasons why we have such challenges hiring good people into organizations. Even with tens of thousands of people being laid off in the tech sector, uh, we still have a shortage of highly skilled people, uh, particularly in STEM fields and in healthcare and in some of those areas. And you unless you're willing to rethink things and make sure you have a really good justification when you take away people's flexibility. Um, unless you can do that and, and articulate that clearly, you're just gonna lose the the faith and trust of your people and you're gonna struggle to be an employer of choice and attract great talent. I I, I don't see any other way around it.
0: Yep. Couldn't couldn't agree with you more. And with, with enough of a wide enough time scale, those organizations I don't think will be able to cross the chasm of time. Um you know, the onus is really on leaders and organizations to figure out an art of gathering and and a true justification for why people should be monetizing digital services since two thousand four, boosting the entertainment industry by making digital content accessible for everyone. AWG, where innovation meets monetization, synchronously in the same place. Ah, man, that that was very validating to hear, sir. Thank you. <laughs> you you have you you have given me. The ability to stand up up and say what's in my say what's on my mind, truly.
1: Yeah. Well, sometimes it it isn't well received. You know, when I say, "Dude, you're crazy," (laughs) Um, but sometimes people need to hear it because sometimes you just need the a little bit of tough love and for someone to actually give you a reality check. Um, And and I really I have seen some leaders who you know they're wading into it and they're they're kind of hesitant, but they're kind of feeling it out. Those aren't the people I'm talking about. I'm talking about the people that are full on retrenched. Um, really trying to, uh, you know, argue for a return to the good old days. And that's wow. just, insa- that's insanity to me.
0: And, you know, perhaps at at, uh, at risk of never being asked by Amazon to do any work with them, I was most surprised by Andy Jesse's email, which had no, no, no qualification whatsoever for his desire to get people back into the office. He was just layering that email with platitudes like, you know, I feel like we do better. Better work when we're in the office. I'm like, well, sir, show me the stats because I can show you MIT Sloan reports. I can show you McKinsey reports. Differences in workplace dimensions related to well-being. Like, what are we talking about, Andy? Um, so I, I sometimes I, I try my best to assume ignorance before I do malevolence, but I can't help but wonder if some of these leaders are using this as an opportunity to shake things up in their organization and and uh, you know uh, get rid of some talent. Maybe I don't know. I, I think
1: I think that's definitely part of it for some organizations um, it, it's a great catalyst point. It's a, it's a, it's an inflection point for organizations right. and it's a good way to sift. Uh, now we could argue all day long, whether or not we think it's an appropriate mechanism for sifting, um, right. you know, or whatever. But I do think that's probably why many organizations are, are going about, you know, this kind and of it's unfortunate
0: because I I believe that how you do one thing is how you do all things. And so if that's the, you know, sort of unethical way that they're going about sifting, it's very, uh you know it's 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 antisocial it's not in the best interest of, of employees um although that could be argued um but i yeah well like and it's, i, it's I agree a and i think Sneaky way to do things
1: yeah yeah and i agree and i think w- one of the things we cl- clearly know by now uh with the research that's been done is that flexible work arrangements disproportionately positively impact um you know minorities people of color women yep. etc And the opposite is true. So when you force everyone to go into the workplace physically, um, then you you disproportionately negatively impact those same populations. Mm -hmm. And so you better have a good justification for it. If you don't, then whether, whether it's your intent or not, then there, there, you know, you bring into question equal employment opportunity um, and discrimination and all sorts of things, uh, which, you know, even if it doesn't cross the legal threshold of, you know, something that you could get sued for, Right, uh, it 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 definitely re- raises you know it's it's a moral question and it's an ethical question for sure.
0: That's fascinating. I never actually thought of the mandated return to to work as an equity issue, but you're absolutely right. For the CEO who bought their house in 2003 to insist on everybody coming back to the downtown core when people have been priced out is truly an equity issue when you think about it, huh? Wow. Yeah. I, we're, yeah we're so five minutes in and it, my head is spinning already. This is it's wild. just
1: another layer to all of this. Right. And, yeah. and so, you know, as you talk again in your book about reinventing leadership for yes. the future of work, um, we just have to take into reality into, um, uh, account the the new realities. Uh, obviously there's all sorts of disruptive technologies that are allowing us to more effectively than ever work remotely, uh, or work in hybrid fashion. Um, you know, it, it's one thing if 10 years ago someone would said I really insist that everyone be together physically in the workplace so we can mm-hmm. be productive that's mm-hmm. an argument I would buy a little bit more um sure. but now <laughs> it, it's it's a hard argument for for me to buy into because uh we've enhanced things so dramatically over the last several years we've just leaped ahead you know a decade uh, in terms of, of where we were at people's buy into the different technologies. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so at this point, you better have a really good justification for it. Um, yeah. the, part of the challenge I think that many old school leaders are facing is they just don't know how to lead or manage mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. this modern world of work with people mm-hmm. working remotely because their style required them to have control. Their yes. style required them to wander around the office, to do visual check-ins, yep. um, and just optics, best right? yeah. the optics and the personal presence. Yep. Yep. Uh, all of that was really important to their style, and now they're like, I don't even know what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know how to hold people accountable. I don't know what they're doing, and and so in many cases, even those who have allowed for remote work to continue, they've put in place all of these ridiculous uh, monitoring protocols, wow. so yeah. they can still see what everyone's doing all the time, and and that's just not what people want. It's not it, you know if if we talk about the negative impacts of micromanaging. Same applies if you're not together physically. If you're remotely and you're still being micromanaged because your keystrokes are being monitored yeah. and you're being checked in on sure. multiple times a day, it's still that's not the type of environment people want to work in where most people will thrive.
0: Exactly. And you had a you had a wonderful episode that I just listened to uh, actually this morning on psychological safety that I would encourage the listeners who are just tuning in for this episode to go back and listen to that. I can't remember the name of the guest that you had on, uh, John, but uh, fantastic episode. You're absolutely right, and I'm, I'm I'm fascinated and obsessed with why leaders behave this way, especially during times of of crisis and stress. And I think so much of it has to do with fear, the fear of a loss of resources, the uh, threat of a loss of resources, or insufficient reward following. A gain in 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 less resources, and that's actually not my own idea. That's the Stephen A. Hopfall conservation of resources theory. And so when that happens, then counterproductive workplace behaviors start to set in within the leadership and across the organization. People become more protective, and the organization becomes more closed. And then you know this better than anyone else, Doctor Westover, the cats and con open and closed system theory. Basically, a closed organization is one that's not engaging with the world around in any meaningful way, and as a result, the nucleus, the core of the organization, festers. And so organizations, specifically leaders, need to become more open and do the counterintuitive thing during a time of change, to actually talk to your employees, to talk to your customers, to talk to your friends and family and get as much information as possible versus making decisions in a silo. And I think one of the unfortunate decisions being made in the silo right now is whether or not to come back into the office. I was part of these conversations in the last organization I was with you know, we would just sit the four of us in a leadership team and just talk about people that weren't at the table. We're making decisions about people that weren't at the table. And so that was frustrating. And I'm seeing this happening at scale. And I I think, again, you do one thing is how you do all things. And so if that's the, you know, the MO in the organization to make decisions about us without us, then that to me is indicative of the organization being closed, which then introduces a whole list of other problems.
1: Yeah. Openness and transparency in the modern sure. age is, is so important. People expect it. It's one of the reasons why trust has gone down in institutions yep. and in organizations because they just don't see, and it, it doesn't mean that, that leaders have nefarious purposes exactly. uh, or nefarious agendas or that they're ill and, ill intent or anything like that. Like It doesn't mean all of that necessarily, but that's what people assume mm-hmm. <laughs> when things yeah. are closed off. And so you just have to recognize, you know, your tendency might be to close things off to be self-protective in times of crisis. And really what you need to do is you need to be more open, more transparent, talk to more people, listen harder, uh, and that will serve you very well. And everything you've been talking about today has been focused around a people-centric organizational mindset, right? An organizational model that focuses on people first. And again, that is a bit of a shift. I know there's certainly plenty of organizations that have shifted in that direction, there are plenty of leaders that have shifted in that direction in recent years, but the vast majority still are kind of this old school, um, you know, mentality around mm-hmm. top-down, uh, autocratic leadership styles yep. and do do what I say. Mm-hmm. Um, it just doesn't work nowadays. If you if you focus on people, the the positive metrics will come. Uh, the ROI is clear on investment in your people, your greatest asset within the organization. You'll create more, have more innovation, you'll provide better value to the market, you'll have better customer retention, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And ultimately, that's what's going to help organizations thrive and stay relevant in the modern and future world of work. And if you don't do those things, like you said, you stagnate uh, and eventually you just become increasingly irrelevant. Like you just aren't going to matter.
0: And there's so many case studies we can rehearse of organizations that became closed, that didn't put their people first. I mean, the 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 downside to me is crystal clear. And what I'm struggling with now, doctor, is uh, sorry, that's just a force of habit. I once you're had a fine, professor that, 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 uh, <laughs> you know, dressed me down for not referring to her as a doctor, but then she changed my mind about it too. She's like, I worked really hard to earn this. And I'm like, you know what? Someday I hope to get a PhD and it would be cool to be called Dr. Khan as well. So let me put that energy out into the world. Well, and I will say for, for,
1: for female doctors, I think it's probably extra important sure. for them to be acknowledged. Um, for me, you're more than welcome to call me John, but, uh, (laughs) but my wife also has a doctorate and, you know, I actually really would prefer that people refer to her as a Dr. Westover because it's, it's just a little bit of a different gendered situation, right. In society. So
0: completely understand that my, my wife is, is currently a PhD candidate as well. And I, I feel, I feel very much the same way as you do, and which is why I'm curious to know, because I feel so much alignment with you, sir. So much synchronicity, like I said, in the opening, like you, you represented the career that I hope to emulate and wish to have. Uh, at some point in the future, um, you know uh, the the downside is very clear to me for not practicing uh, opening the organization. And I get sometimes stuck thinking that everything we're talking about right now se- seems so obvious. Put people first. Mm-hmm. Treat your employees well, and if you treat your employees well, they'll, they'll take care of the customers, and customers will take care of the profits. For my uh, this two part question is this uh, is this obvious, or are we in a bubble? Uh, and the second question is. If it is obvious, or if the logic does seem sound, why is this not more widespread? Why have why is the opposite normalized?
1: Yeah, well, it's a it's a good question, and I do think it's actually fairly obvious. I if you mm-hmm. ask most leaders, and you ask them, you know, just the kind of the social norms and and the the uh, desired response, people most people realize, yeah, micromanaging bad, autocratic right. leadership bad, like exactly, cooperative. Right? Uh, yeah. Most people recognize that they'll say these types of things, but then they don't do these types of things and they okay. undermine their own ability. Um, and it's not rocket science. It's not super complicated. I think most people tend to kind of recognize it, but where the rubber meets the road, when you you find yourself in, in a moment of crisis or you're feeling pressured by management above you and you feel like the only response is to pressure the people below you so you can get mm. the metrics that so you look good, blah, blah, blah. All of that puts the pressure on people. Um, and our, the, the, approach that we're talking about takes time. It takes persistence. Uh, it takes resilience and right. you just have to be, there's no, there's no substitute for consistency over time. Uh, and, and in the short run, you might see worse results. Because you're not putting the screws to people. right. Uh, But in the long run, you'll foster greater trust. You'll foster greater accountability. You'll foster, you know, people will just do more creative things because they're not being micromanaged, because they feel empowered. So in the long run, much better benefits. But we tend to be such a short-term oriented society that I think it's just harder for people, you know, when push comes to shove. It's kind of, let let me give you one quick example. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah, this is great. I'm a really slow typer. Um, I'm not a great typer uh You're I never a... you know I'm of I'm of the age th- before they started really doing typing in school uh, I'm old enough to kind of be in that group um so I never really learned how to type um I did some typing games and stuff like that a little bit and and but I'm a hunt and pecker so I'm a three finger person like I literally <laughs> I type it. with with three fingers um now I know full well that I will be a much better, more effective typer. If I will just like practice 10 minutes a day, you know, for a couple months, I'll be way better. Do sure. I do it? No, I've never no. done it. I'm still <laughs> a three finger typer. And I think it's the same thing for yeah, a lot man. of leaders. They know what they should do, but it, it requires a little bit of extra work in the short run um, that will pay long-term dividends and they're just not willing to do it or, or they have good intentions, but then they just fall back into bad habits.
0: Wow. And this is where now you've helped me understand sort of where And why I'm holding back from saying the thing that I want to say. So I truly believe that while I'm there doing work, helping organizations, helping leaders, helping teams operate within a capitalist paradigm, I also have the heart of an activist. And I'm kind of hoping that this revolution goes to the full extent that it can go. And there's one big union that forms that's in the best interest of employees, but that's (laughs) too much. And that's not going to lend itself very well to a thriving speaking publishing career. I also believe though, that change should happen from when Within, I think that we can try as much as we want to shout and make change from without. And I'm not discrediting the work of activists. Again, like I said, I, I, I truly have the heart of an activist. I find that I'm I'm at my most persuasive when I can convince people to work within their mm-hmm. their frameworks. And you know, it's, it's so in, it's so interesting. One of the models that I've been relying on recently to help inform my work and my research is the destructive leadership matrix, um, which basically tries to reconcile the tension between what's good for the employee and what's good for the organization. And that dichotomy, like, do you focus too much on the organization at the expense of the employees, and do you focus too much on the employees on the on the opposite on the yeah. other side? Do you focus too much on the employees at the expense of the organization? And I was recently watching the, uh, um, I think it's uh, Howard Schultz, Starbucks testify before mm-hmm. Senate, and I was sitting there with that matrix, and I was just making notes in every quadrant of that, like, hey, this is good for Starbucks, this is not good for employees. Okay, this is good for employees, but not good for Starbucks. And it was just fascinating to see that short termism. I think he was trying to make decisions with the best of intentions for the shareholders of Starbucks. And as a shareholder of Starbucks, I'm like, I'm okay to not get a dividend for the next five years if you retool this company to be focused on employees, which is in the best interest of employees, customers, communities, and the planet. I'm okay. Don't you don't owe me anything, Mr. Schultz? Just take care of your employees and we'll talk 10 years from now. But you're right, that short term thinking is so hard coded into the fabric of, 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 The workplace. So much so that I was surprised. I'm I'm doing some research right now on B Corp and the evolution of B Corp and how that was a natural uh, conclusion from ESG and where did ESG come from? And I looked at CSR, the origins of CSR. And I know Dr. Westover, you know this. So allow me to just explain how surprised I was as as a very nascent researcher to find that the fundamental assumption in CSR is that profits come first. And I was like, oh no, like we've built this on such, such a shoddy foundation with the best of intentions. But profits should be a byproduct of taking care mm-hmm. of your people. And this is the fundamental shift that I think needs to happen. And so it's validating to know that while this seems obvious, it gets lost in practice because of short-termism.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Hamza, this has just been a really fun conversation. I know <sighs> at the time I'm going to need to let you go and get on with your busy oh, day, but man, before okay. we... Before we wrap things up for today, I just wanted to give you a chance to share with the audience how they can connect with you, find out more about your work, your team, where they can find your book, and then give us the final word on the topic for today.
0: Certainly. And I, I appreciate how flexible you were with this conversation and answering my questions as well It's felt more like a, more like a dialogue versus an interview. So thank you, sir, for being very generous. Uh, I have all of my links compiled for, for the listeners at hums that's H a M Z a or Z a for my fellow Americans. Uh, hamzakha dot C A, And uh, the company that I'm building right now with my partner is skills Camp. It's a soft skills training company, very similar to the organization that you are building right now, Dr. Westover, so much so that I sent the link. And I was like, take a look. This is this is the, <laughs> our North Star over here. SkillsCamp.co, dot co. If, if you could take anything that I've said today, and just distill it down to three words, put people first.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Thank you so much. I encourage the audience to reach out, get connected, find out more about what Hamza can do for you. Check out his book. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week. Do you enjoy the Human Capital Innovations podcast? Enjoy ad-free listening by going to the Patreon page. And please consider contributing even at the producer or sponsorship level.